Pattern Shift presents Rights of the Renouncer, an audiobook serial podcast by Benjamin Camphouse. Chapter 5, Part 2. I heard a small, steady drip. Water was pooling in a transparent canister attached to a pipe coming in from the wall. The wall was stacked, corrugated plastic. Its dark gray coiled all around me. Eventually it gave way to the dome at the top of our shelter, which was singly cast and solid. I should have been sleeping, wanted to, had been moments before, but I was wired now. I had just woken up from a dream. My memory had already gone foggy, but I knew I had fought with something, could feel my body still tensed, ready to take that battle into the waking world. Whatever had sparked it was not here in the room with me, was not even real, but my body had some predefined shutdown procedure and it insisted on following each step precisely. Are you okay, Owen? Victor, whispering. We were next to each other in the shelter. I must have woken him when I stirred. I was trying to stay quiet and not wake anyone, but had obviously not succeeded. I think so, just a dream. I let a breath out slowly and deliberately. Then I felt Victor's hand on my shoulder, no other words. It exchanged some signal with the tension there, gave it permission to dissipate. As the tension drained, I could feel my sleepiness surfacing again, no longer masked. This was the memory of reassurance I had brushed against before. The color was not quite right, though. As Victor, the adult, I could feel my own interpretive lens passing over, distorting the memory with my perspective. That was the part I had to omit. I noted my interpretation with detachment, acknowledging it, but also seeking a different vantage point. Let those other fragments of myself see to me. I am looking for Owen. I searched for another memory to connect to this one, something from Owen, perhaps the older Owen, that would differ more starkly from my own. I was standing outside, the first time in weeks we'd been allowed out. A stream of wheeled drones was ranging along the river's shore to the north. Each drone was inspecting patches of the surface with a sensor array, emitting short beeps when a concentration of perchlorate was found. They would scoop the regolith out, then carry it to a separate outbuilding, a few hundred meters away from our living space. There, they would divvy the perchlorate out into several containers filled with anaerobic microbes that could process it, freeing the oxygen bound up in the molecules and releasing the majority of that oxygen as gas into the bag. The oxygen would rise up through a filter tube where it would be separated from other byproducts of the microbes metabolizing, eventually making its way into the canisters that other drones would bring back to our living quarters. This provided a steady, though tediously extracted, supply of oxygen. That absurd ant colony dynamic is what allowed me to take this walk and gape at it like an idiot out on the surface now. I looked over my right shoulder. Victor was standing there with a similarly idiotic expression on his face. I could just make out that constant faraway look of his through the shielded glass of his vac suit's visor. Well, Victor? He startled as if just realizing I had walked out there with him, then shrugged. Off in La La Land again? Something like that, he muttered. I could barely hear his low voice at that volume. Did you still want to head down to the river, or do you want to gawk at the oxygen ferry some more? Yeah, the river sounds great. There was a touch of eagerness in his voice then, finally. Caught up in that memory at first, I began sorting out pieces of it. I had parts too, but that longing for action from me, from Victor, that flippant natural enjoyment, that was Owen. I tried to cling to that, let it carry me further. They seriously thought that. 
The screen displayed an old map in front of us, nation boundaries drawn as dotted lines on a satellite image. The whole thing was a joke, if you asked me. Well, war, violent engagements, and the corresponding casualties, they'd all decreased for decades since nuclear arms first appeared. That would be Victor, playing devil's advocate for sport. I sighed. There was no way they were justified coming to any conclusion from such a small time period. That would have been like saying that penguins were a deterrent to polar bears because you never found polar bears in the southern hemisphere with the penguins. Refutation by parallel reasoning, the display categorized my retort helpfully. Successful or not? Ugh. That took all the fun out of it. Victor wouldn't be able to resist the virtual teacher's prod. I'm not sure that applies, Victor started cautiously. Of course, cautiously. There was also a time sequencing, unlike with polar bears and penguins. Nuclear weapons were developed, then immediately after there was a reduction in the occurrence of direct violent conflict. Also, people had worked out the basic game theory of assured mutual destruction even before nuclear arms appeared on the scene. So they had a mechanism, too. Victor rattled the rest of it off so easily it almost sounded rehearsed. Ayadel gave him an admiring look, still nurturing her crush. The Dumkopf didn't even notice. Refutation demonstrated to be inadequate, the display read. Why the hell had our ancestors, in their infinite wisdom, thought we would want a scoreboard for class discussions? How about this one? I barked at the display, presenting my middle finger for it to inspect. What's the logical structure of this argument? I got a few laughs for that, but Ayadel just scowled at me. Anyways, we all know what happened after that. Victor has to be wrong. I had no memory of that event. I remembered the classes of our mid-teens and many such discussions, of course. Owen was right, too. I had never noticed Ayadel giving me any regard or Owen's own interest in her as I felt from his thoughts now. I was sure she was still on the surface, somewhere in Darklight City. She was not among the untethered. I had not seen her name or person there. We had only had one of our generation die accidentally. Well, it could have been a suicide, also. That. There was an Owenness to my line of thought now, inquiring after her fate, that of our classmates. It was something in which my interest had been indulged and fully spent before, but this was his curiosity, a past potential romantic partner, the competition between friends, the pleasure-seeking and status maintenance of his sense of self slowly emerging, querying what I knew. The affinity between thoughts and the underlying reality of selves, these things are often not pleasant. Owen, a male in his late teens, at the time of his untethering, at best these links occupied the line between remorse and thrill-seeking. Otherwise, shame, revenge-seeking, and the like, we were as educated and self-disciplined as our carefully tailored upbringing could accomplish, but we were still human. I had traversed a graph of such memories, threats to status, rivalries and slights, opportunities for, and some limited success at, sexual conquests. I had no choice but to fill myself up in this way, to chase after these experiences as he once had, to get caught up in the highs and the lows that make up the majority of memory. I was mostly eager to live the recall of Owen's life, my carefully guarded appraisal, as it appears here. These are judgments after the fact, made in forming this account. Or in some cases, they were mistakes I had made, each small reaction of Victor instead of Owen losing that thread momentarily. And I, whoever I was then, would have to pick it back up, retreading some of the same ground. Finally, I came to a moment of deep shame. 
I am sorry to say that we are not better creatures than this, but shame is one of the strongest links between memory and the self. I am sure this is one reason why the self was such an enemy in so many ancient contemplative traditions. But for me, then, pragmatic in my quest, if something keeps escaping you and you want to tie it down, you use the strongest cables you have. There I was, looking at Victor from behind, my friend, one step better than me in every direction, it seemed, his posture always more upright by an inch, that fixed cool, the temper that seldom strayed from his control, the waves of the river spread out in formation around us as he piloted the bow rider. The vehicle was too small for a controlled atmosphere, and we were both in back suits. I was belted in, but he wasn't, using his own legs and body positioning to steer the craft. It was the perfect place for an accident to happen, here in this curated world where accidents seemed impossible. I sat quietly, thought about what it would be like to push him into the river. I could feel myself falling into him, damaging his suit before the fall. I felt the wrongness of it, but I saw it play out in my mind again. I couldn't look away. Victor turned back to me then, appreciation and affection in his voice. It's good to be out here with you, Owen. I think I could ride over this river forever. He had no idea what I just thought. I felt guilt spread through my body, heating and tensing it up. Who was I to consider something like this? This was stupid. This wasn't me. I wouldn't let it be me. I let my forehead rest against his back. Me too, Victor. That had been a year before Owen was lost to me. I remembered that ride over the river, the joy of being together. I had suspected nothing of this strong resentment. At first I recoiled, never imagining what thoughts had occurred in my friend's head. I had not had a momentary fantasy quite like that one before, but of course I have had my own unbidden, sinister thoughts. We all do, we ridiculous apes, we tiny creatures. So many stories, works of art, therapy sessions throughout human history, they have been poured out over moments like these, over that precarious balance between friends and rivals. We measure our use to one another in the same units with which we measure threat. And we are not our thoughts. They emerge from some generative capacity we have within us. But they are not our nature or our destiny. To have a thought like this and rule it out forever is to be guilty of nothing. I was still jarred, though. I was here for Owen's sake, but I was also an intruder. These were not my memories, and in Owen's dissipated state he could choose neither to consent nor withdraw. Though privacy was illusory in this place, the leaks between fool dreaming selves were at least mutual, and there was something else distorting Owen's memories in this dream medium in which they now could be recalled. My recoiling, then being pulled and compelled in turn, that was more than just my appraisal of Owen's thoughts. They were like puzzle pieces that had been warped and weathered and no longer fit. The description of Owen's state, the untethering, was eerily correct. Whoever had coined it, they must have brushed against such fragments of thought in the dream world before. Or had my own perception colored it that way, knowing I was here to find someone untethered. I had nearly been swept away in that moment of immersion in Owen, cycling between myself, his re-emerging self, and moments of not-self. Like being lost in the immediacy of a task that splintered out forever, fractally dispersed beyond imagining. But I was here again now, and Owen was being gathered as well. I could feel the tugs and pulls, glimpses of him, all joining back together. That greater part of the iceberg, my own unconscious, was tending to that task. Finding, unifying, the prospector following those veins of Owen wherever they led, mining all that could be mined.
It was then that the other pounced, or better, struck, like a snake strikes a rodent from a perch on a tree or rock. One moment I was a coherent self acting in the world, the next I was fully enveloped. I could no longer track the wispy traces of Owen I was holding in mind. My world was replaced with an inky, swirling darkness. Owen's weaker ego coherence, building out from my unconscious efforts to bind him back together, it was just gone. In its place, the other's sense of being overtook me. The arc of my mind wandering was reshaped, pulled into a different network. The chatter, the volume of consciousness flowing, differed significantly. Whispers and scratches layered over one another and amplified, the sound unnatural and grating to the ears. I felt the presence of not just one, but many minds. The human body has other smaller nervous systems embedded inside it. The digestive system houses one, with a small intestine containing the densest concentration of neural tissue outside the brain. Being within the other, it was as if those analogous neural structures for signal consolidation and feedback had grown into sub-minds, each limb or sensory apparatus with its own representative, reporting back to a council of minds that reached consensus for this action or another. If I had not been through the practice of meditation at the base of the cenotaph, experiencing the minds of my own kind in such an ensemble, that contact might have exceeded my ability to process it. The minds churned around me. Their count was fewer than those human minds who had brushed my own in that earlier meditation. But inside the other, each mind was fully active, processing incoming information, manufacturing new memory, encoding all of this into entirely foreign representations. I narrowed the focus of my conscious awareness to a tight beam, the rest of the raw information passing through me like an electrical current, my unconscious forming a closed circuit where it charged and rattled me but did not blot out my intentional perception. Reaching around inside that mass of foreign thought, I scanned its permeable boundary to the outside dream world. I began to understand the connections it relied on for visual processing. I found one submind, analogous perhaps to our visual cortex, and, narrowing my awareness there, I could tap into the representations it was forming, working out an interpretation through trial and error. Colors and contrast were handled geometrically, the sensory processing likely having evolved out of light receptors without differentiated cones, using some other mechanism or prism to categorize the light by wavelength, seeing the world in herringbone and crosshatch instead of red and blue. I sought to find another node of understanding, the minds conferred, knew they were being probed, rejected me and withdrew. Or rather, some guard was raised. I was presented with a cycle of minds, each changing in turn, camouflaging itself to be like the others. You were different. I formed words to attach to the sentiment of that interruption. The complexity of language, the encodings, something similar to that combination of words and grammar was at work there, modulating thought and emotion and impulse over whatever connection we shared in the dream world. What was the correct response? Empathy? Humility? Should I puff up like a creature attempting to demonstrate to a predator or rival that a physical engagement would cost them? It didn't matter, of course. What I was transmitting, what it could discern, would be whatever was happening in my own mind, through whatever decoding processes its minds possessed or could make use of, including this line of reasoning now as I could feel it all around me. Detaching from my own line of thought, thinking behind myself, I could feel some portion of it brushing against me with cautious appraisal. It was suspicious, trying to understand my capabilities, plotting its own contingencies. Whatever time lag was between our thoughts was the only possible shield I could hoist against it. 
what is this place? I focused my mind on that query as a fixed point, more so found myself doing than willing it. Through the fluid boundaries between me and the other, it would be, was, like a piercing alarm one could not turn off. That direct focus of thought, all my conscious processes considering the character of the words, their sound, the semantic space they occupied, the thrust of my unconscious behind it. What is owed, the thought, or my interpretation acting on it? Stranger, intruder, guest? I could map those words to its confusion about how to consider me as it flowed between sub-minds. The other never seemed to produce direct lines of thought. Different aspects of it swirled about me, several problem chunks, meaning chunks scattered about. It has access to me, I thought, and I can only feel its surface parts and the raw emotion coordinating them. The sense of superiority in its reaction then was unmistakable. Directed or autonomic, I was not sure. I had confirmed some weakness, and in whatever territorial skirmish we had engaged, my own threat was lessened. I am not defenseless, I reminded myself, the creature. Different unconscious processes were rising up within me, again focusing on this place, dream world. It must not have had a simple decoding for dream. Nothing of the word seemed to occupy those processes inside it that were becoming more familiar to me by the moment. My own interfaces of thought were reshaping to track them, my unconscious still urging ahead, trying to gain some ground, some useful position from which to defend, strike if necessary, in this engagement. Place, I focused again, this place, a place like any other, confusion at my own curiosity, a place you step out to when you step out in this direction. The information cohered slowly in a few places on the surface thoughts of the other that were now enveloping me. The step. That word was wrong. The other knew it, but it was trying to make sense of my locomotion, to grasp an appropriate metaphor. Its own motives in this shifted constantly. I would say I could hardly guess at them, but this would not be true. I could hardly guess at specific contents in its motivation, but the gist was as obvious as the nature of the game we were playing. The other was exploring, opening possibilities. In presenting a small offering here or there, it wanted to see what I would do, how I would react. It was learning me, learning our mental dance, learning what moves were on the table. Threat was the sentiment being projected at me, now as before. I had not come into the dream world so deliberately just to lose myself in such an engagement. The determination my own unconscious brought to bear was deciphering what it could. What was the step? A different axis of reality? There were dichotomies missing in its mind, frames of reference that did not cohere with my own. What did the creature misunderstand about my own misunderstanding? I was scanning it as it scanned me, trying to decode what I could. A naive dualism in my language, in dream, in mind, thinking that this was a place that minds go. This was some other axis of reality, and reality was information. Physics, the structure of the world that I experienced, that I lived and died by even. This was only one projection of that information in which my experience would otherwise be bound up. This place was made up of some other projection, an unseen sibling of the physical world. Information, the other ventured, focusing in multiple places as it had before to try to pass information to me, reverse engineering my own mapping of its concept with cautious curiosity. No physical, just information. A correction at what it thought was a mistake beyond children. It was struggling, as we would struggle in trying to explain language to an animal that could imitate our sounds, having been fooled momentarily by its parroting of speech. 
Why do we enter when dreaming? The information concept the creature had latched onto. What construct of information was compatible with this almost out-of-body coming and going? The other's regard persisted, deciphering my question, then another shift in disorientation. A listening part left and an answering part came before me. When it faces north, walking forward takes it north. To walk forward and go south, it must face south. To turn, it must use the turning part, not the walking part. Reaching for metaphors in my mind with which to communicate some obvious truth, something it would feel no need to communicate to others. I could feel the other's frustration, trying to explain and still trying to hold back what it thought it could while compelling a response, not wanting to give away anything beyond that. Maybe another angle would help me decipher the metaphor. From where in the waking world does this place emanate? Again, I focused the thought, this time fixing on one submind, not letting it slip past or revolve away. The response was almost pain-like. This was now a territorial engagement that denigrated from diplomacy. Was I an aggressor here, simply in the act of thinking? Where does this place overlap? The confusion and processing on the surface, I focused my own thoughts again as one might shine an enormous industrial light into the depths of a cave. The other was parsing my question. It resisted a direct answer, but not with a unified front. The constituent minds were conferring as it tried to make sense of me. That sense-making betrayed it. Some part was distracted, tied up in this deciphering, and it let me pass unintentionally. The core? Does it ask about the core? I latched onto those pieces I caught in the chatter between minds, disentangling them, deciphering what I could. The core? The Fiscania Prime? Was the other or its kind there? Did they project this dream world through some technology I could not fathom? The core? No, it cannot have it. A sudden rush of panic coordinated all its surface processes as the other began to go dark and I was expelled. Then I felt it vanish from around me. I could not track where it had gone, was wondering if it had retreated. It had not. The other pushed through me from somewhere in my own mind. It had not left but gone inside, was now like a bomb going off in the direct center of my thinking. I was torn apart, my consciousness drawn and quartered, or more accurately, drawn into thousandths. I knew then what must have happened to the others, to Owen, what had spread him out in this place like some geological event. The push was an eruption, would have left veins of my mind scattered throughout this region of the dream world like so much volcanic rock, my consciousness torn apart and left as nothing more than a stratigraphy of thought. If not for the evil eye charm, the Nazar, that the boy had handed me when I first arrived at Darklight City. The workings of that charm, or my unconscious in conjunction with it, whatever the source, I was gone, then ricocheting, swirling and cohering back into myself. Those moments of not-self from the push were at first chaotic and overwhelming, a flash of unordered perceptual events, all at once, then not at once, nonsensically arranged. The smell of flowers, then the sound of them being ground, my own ears and hearing apparatus were being ground into them, and yet the grinding became louder. A flash of light, my eyes fixed open, the retina burning, and I was unable to close my eyelids even a millimeter. The torturous, pleasant, absurd, all mixed up together. My own recall of this, though dulled now, still plays out like a small eternity, my mind assembling those sensations into a sequence. But I can infer the reality that this was all immediate, the result of being shattered and suddenly reformed. Because the other responded as if the push had done nothing, as if the eye of the Nazar had sprung into being in response, rendering its attacks ineffectual. 
We were still connected for a moment longer. I could feel the surprise and circulation inside of it, pockets of dissatisfaction and frustration giving way to fear. It hadn't worked. I was still there, now encased in a sphere, concentric rings of dark than light blue, and that black pupil at the center, staring back into the other's shadowy form, assuming no affect at all, a dead, unregarding look. And then I was thinking my own thoughts, could begin to make out the faint, newly reformed ones of Owen and their disoriented youthfulness. The other was separated entirely, the blue-black eye surrounding Owen and I growing hard and opaque where it had been thin and translucent. As it solidified, the remaining echoes of the other's panic subsided. It pulsed around the few areas of the surface where light still pierced through, possibly regrouping or readying another attack. But while the eye had grown solid, Owen and I were fading in turn. Ego maintenance. I realized then that some portion of myself had been working on that problem, had enlisted my techniques and training from all those years on Oneri Station, as the other's last thought, the core, echoed through my being. The other and its fear and aggression were gone, the eye had vanished, and so I opened my own eyes and found myself yet again in the hospital, in the ward of the untethered dreamers. I was still grasping Owen's hand. I looked to his face to find him already looking back at me, tears starting on the inside of one eye, a channel forming between it and the bridge of his nose. I hugged him, grateful to have him back, but daring only a shallow sigh of relief. The Rights of the Renouncer novella is out in Kindle and paperback formats now. The album, the Scania Prime, and the EP, Rights of the Renouncer, are available on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening.